This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 29th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. The struggle over taxes and spending now underway is depressingly narrow, and the prospects for real spending cuts and real tax reform seem quite poor. John Samples, author of the book The Struggle to Limit Government, says reforms in the past have required leaders willing to stand against their own parties. This debate over spending and taxes seems to, in some ways, be in sort of a bizarro land. That is, there's an abject refusal to reckon with the fact that we have a federal government that is spending well in excess of 20 percent of of GDP, and neither side really seems to be making plans for that number to go down. Right. There's this sense that there's just a brutal fact out there, right, that spending can't go down any more than what is on the table at any one point. Part of that, I think, is the Dems on their side are seen as a party of a certain kind of spending, government spending. And they are now, the idea that they won the election is uh, pretty abroad in the nation. And so, therefore, that spending doesn't have to be cut. And on the other side, uh, the Republicans uh, remain committed to defense spending, uh, might accept some cuts, but, you know, a significant decrease is off the table. So you're, in a sense, you just feel like you're, you have a split government and you just have this brute fact. Uh, the quality of the spending, the necessity, drawing distinctions between vital and non-vital, anything you want to talk about, let alone, not even get lowered, getting to libertarian elements, uh, none of that gets done. It's just this is our people, you sense, and we're not going to let them make any sacrifice or whatever. I mean, just a brute fact. Uh, even people like Paul Ryan, who are supposed to be these sort of uh, – a conservative icon when it comes to reducing spending. For the most part, even in his own budget plan, military spending is just off the table. Right. I mean, there's this sense, and it's hard not to uh, associate with this with the idea that the, the, the spending is being used to uh, bring about continual re-election of uh, either one or both parties or also, uh, you know, members in particular uh, constituencies, that whatever their view about the general picture, well, they have this subsidy or this this kind of uh, spending, and they, they're there to protect it, and they would expect uh, or they feel that they can't be reelected without doing that. The offer that probably ought to be made from a libertarian perspective is that Republicans should give in on cutting the Pentagon and uh, Democrats should be giving in on cutting entitlement programs. But, of course, Republicans like uh, entitlement programs as well, and Democrats like defense spending. And it just seems like a handy foil to toss out there to say, well, I'm sorry, we couldn't get a more substantive deal here, but we just couldn't find areas of agreement when the fact is that they just like – they both seem to like the spending that the other one is is uh, fighting to prevent to save. At some level, I think that's true. I think probably at some margin, the Democrats are more willing to cut defense spending and maybe some other kinds of, uh, maybe even entitlement spending. That uh, remember, Republicans got 56 percent of uh, the vote over 65 in the election. Some kinds of Medicare spending, Dems may be willing to uh, to cut. And uh, uh, yes, on the other side, I, I think there's. There's also the – with the Republicans, there's an unwillingness to cut some things. But 
I would add, you know, this all comes down into bargaining between Boehner and uh, President Obama, and they have their numbers, and so that's just where that is. This is not some kind of actual rational process of assessing. I mean, one of the things I would despair about in my time at Cato is any finding any evidence at all that Congress or anyone else is doing rational assessment of the spending and whether it uh, produces, you know, benefits in excess of the cost. I just, there's very little evidence that anyone's doing that. In fact, you would think at this moment, though, that's exactly what they should be talking about. And everybody should be able to identify a bunch of programs that have been shown to not be effective, but we're not seeing that. Okay, from CBS News here. Uh, Major Garrett reports that the president has outlined a two-step process to avert fiscal cliff. Republicans must uh, take a move toward preventing a tax increase on households earning less than $250,000 a year, uh, and that has to be done now. And the president and Congress then would work out details of spending cuts at some point later. The spending cuts that are scheduled to go into effect on January 1 Mm -hmm. were after a process in which they delegated spending cuts to a group of people, uh, a super committee, because Congress and the president couldn't agree on spending cuts. I mean, it just seems like they're in, you know, it's, it's Groundhog Day, in a sense. Well, you see why a lot of people that I've talked to on the inside think uh, that this is a lot of smoke and mirrors and a lot of talk and posturing, and that what we'll get is uh, some patches, some incremental stuff, and then the, you know, the the can will be kicked down the road. And another sense you get here, and sense you get from looking at the history of budgeting issues in the last fifty years, is. The can gets kicked down the road until the moment at which it's no longer possible because they're afraid that something really bad is happening because they've been kicking the can down the road. However, you know, uh, the economist John Cochran's talked about how you could have a crisis of uh, a run on the dollar, essentially, a, a loss of confidence in American government. And once that happens, you can't then start making the changes that you need to do all along, but that seems to be, I would guess, the mode that Congress operates in. Libertarians ought to be interested in uh, the structure of any any deal if, we're, if one were to, which is unlikely, if one were to emerge. But uh, you have written extensively about the 1986 tax reform and how that came about and what I think your standard bearer conservative conservatives and libertarians ought to think about it. We had a lot of deductions go away, mm-hmm. uh, but we also had rates go down. Right. That's what attracted Reagan to it. Initially, Reagan was attracted to the idea for the 84 election. He thought uh, Democrats were going to use it against him. Uh, so he wanted to have an idea about it. Then it got into the actual policy process after Reagan was reelected. And you ended up with about a shifting of uh, getting rid of about $125 billion in 1985 dollars of uh, tax preferences. Now, you know, this shifted things around. Some people, businesses, saw higher taxes. But uh, people, who, since there was, you know, the, the overall aggregate stayed the same, people who w- would pay – you could – finance that with lower rates. You could finance lower rates that way, and that's what Reagan kept his eye on, and that's what's being talked about this time. The politics of it in 86 was a little um, 
idiosyncratic. I mean, not only the fact that Reagan really made the difference standing against his own party at times. In a sense, also, they snuck up on all of the concentrated interests. It just was sort of thrown on them when Bob Packwood, who had traditionally been a very strong supporter of the tax regime, changed his mind and turned on uh, people that he, the lobbyist he had known for some time and, and managed to get the whole thing through. This time, uh, would, things are different. Tax reform is widely discussed. The people whose oxes will be gored uh, know about it. They are organizing. They will be organizing through over the next month or so and throughout the next year. Uh, so you can't really get the jump on them the way that it happened in uh, 2000, uh, excuse me, 1986. So um, I think that's uh, an important difference. I mean, I mean things like, for example, uh, you have to remember in 86, a lot of the things, the big numbers in tax reform were all taken off the table not only the mortgage deduction, but things like uh, states, uh, the deductibility of state taxes, which is a real subsidy for high-tax states. That was on the table originally, but uh, it got taken off the table when governors showed up and sort of barged into the negotiations. You were talking about President Reagan standing against his party in order to get uh, get the deal done. President Obama and, and others have said, look, we've put a lot of things on the table. And what they're talking about is asking high income earners to pay higher tax rates. Right. Like and, and but that is that's presented as we're putting something on the table. But I think everybody understands what it means to put something on the table. It really means spending political capital. Right. Um, and also it does seem that in this case uh, the president is a very different person. Uh, he seems his just as much as Reagan's priority was lower rates uh, his priority and, you know, basic uh, idea is that you have to raise taxes in one way or the other on uh, 3% of the population. And so he seems to be going at that either just through rate. So he's looking for increased rates or uh, the tax reform is not to make it more neutral, more fair, or more productive, but rather as a way to get because of the way the the uh, tax preferences are to shift the cost of government onto that three percent, so we've got a it's a different circumstance in in that regard. There were two other things about the eighty six reform that I think are not well known, but do give you pause too uh, at this moment. One was that in the two or three months after it was passed, uh, there were was polling about it, uh, and it was not especially popular. It was not something that people overwhelmingly supported. They weren't overwhelmingly against it, but it wasn't something that caught public excitement. The second thing is, um, perhaps more seriously, I mean, it's not that you got, you got lower rates uh, uh, and fewer deductions. You got rid of all the interest group messes and so on, and waste that goes with that. But you didn't get persistent lower rates. What you got was a broader tax base, and then just a few years later, you got higher rates again. So um, if you got lower rates out of this somehow, um, the history tells you that you have to be wary about there being more rates, more higher rates on a broader base, which means more taxes as a percentage of our national wealth. And of course, for libertarians, that's uh, definitely something we don't want to see. 
John Samples is director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government. You can get his most recent book, The Struggle to Limit Government, at Cato.org.